What's Up Podcast. In today's episode, I have Dr. Eben Alexander, a Harvard-trained neurosurgeon and author of New York Times bestselling book, Proof of Heaven. Today's episode, we talk about his near-death experience and how going through this made him completely reevaluate his spiritual beliefs and his previous beliefs in consciousness. So a lot of very thought-provoking stuff in this episode. Listen to it to the very end because there are bits and pieces scattered throughout the episode that really make you question your beliefs and your previous thoughts on what you may have thought was true about the way your consciousness is formed. This episode is one of my favorites and will make you think for a while after the episode. So tune in um, and I hope you enjoy it. I had spent the first 54 years of my life honing a very kind of conventional uh, scientific worldview, uh, you know, working as a neurosurgeon, um, and including all that training, and then, of course, uh, spending uh, 15 years on faculty at Harvard Medical School, uh, developing lots of advanced technologies, I felt I had some idea of how brain, mind, and consciousness are interrelated. But what my coma journey showed me very clearly is that much of what we assume about uh, the physical world and about the nature of the brain uh, and its interpretation in terms of generating consciousness and an awareness of the world around us, um, a lot of that is an assumption that is unwarranted. And that's why we've run into so much trouble with uh, what is known as the hard problem of consciousness, which is basically a philosophical statement about the uh, kind of impossibility or challenge of trying to explain the workings of the physical brain and how that might all result in conscious awareness. And uh, there have been numerous red flags rising up over the last century of scientific investigation to show that our conventional uh, thinking of physicalism, you know, that the physical world is all that exists and that somehow the brain must be creating consciousness out of physical matter um, is false. And, and uh we're getting rid of that view because uh, it really doesn't take us anywhere. And the, and the place that we're now going in terms of a scientific understanding of brain, mind, and consciousness is very exciting and liberating for uh, human beings because of the implications uh, for what it means in terms of our ability uh, to manifest kind of the, the free will of our higher soul, a way I'd like to phrase it often. Uh, but for me, the journey was... Uh, you know, very, it was very concrete. I had uh, a severe gram-negative bacterial meningitis, uh, the symptom onset of about three hours from, uh, you know, some back pain and headache to uh, being deep in coma and seizing uncontrollably. And that's how I spent the next uh, seven days of my life. And those who know anything about uh, severe bacterial uh, meningoencephalitis will realize that given the uh, medical details of my illness, especially the neurologic exams, um, the CT and MRI scans, all that kind of thing, and the lab values, that kind of patient doesn't have any kind of experience. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing important to point out to your listening audience who may not be uh, as uh, educated in, in medicine is that uh, such a meningitis is a perfect model for human death uh, because it basically eradicates the human part of the brain, the neocortex, the outer surface, which modern neuroscience would say at least some part of which uh, should be relatively intact to give us any of the details of conscious experience uh, because all neuroscientists 
uh, will basically um, confess to believing that every single bit of everything we've ever thought or our perceptions, our awareness, uh, every bit of it is due to the neurons in the brain. The mistake is in believing that it's created there as opposed to seeing the brain as a filtering mechanism. Uh, and the thing that was such a shocker in my experience was having um, this progressive uh, destruction of my neocortex uh, did not produce a gradual dimming down of my conscious awareness to nothing, which of course is what the materialist model of brain creates consciousness would suggest, but it was the opposite of that that in fact my awareness became far, far greater uh, and I was led into realms that were far more real than anything I'd ever experienced in, in this realm. Uh, and that, of course, was a big shocker, especially when all the machinery that modern neuroscience would say is necessary for the details of conscious awareness, when that machinery was very demonstrably uh, devastated. I mean, my scan showed that all eight lobes of my brain were affected. No region was spared, this onslaught. Mm -hmm. And, of course, those who understand anything about that illness will also realize that you don't spend a week deep in coma from meningoencephalitis uh, with kind of a clinical deterioration that I had and then expect that in a certain small percentage of patients you'll have a recovery, a complete recovery, uh, which is exactly what happened over about eight weeks uh, post-coma in my case. Uh, that's not the story behind these cases. So, and for our audience listening, you described in your book a very, um, a very rare case of meningitis from a, from a, an organism that doesn't typically cause uh, meningitis. Uh, could you talk about that just for a second? Just yeah, because that, I think it's important. Well, that was uh, kind of an interesting feature of all this. Uh, my doctors, uh, you know, when I was first taken to the emergency room, seizing in coma. Uh, they quickly determined that meningitis might be the culprit and did a lumbar puncture, putting the needle into the fluid space in my back, you know, the fluid space that uh, connects the brain and spinal cord. And what they found was I had a gram-negative uh, bacterial meningitis. Now, that's uh, something that does occur in adults. It's not that common. But the next day is when they got the real zinger, when microbiology reported back to them that it was E. coli. Because if you do a medical literature search on spontaneous um, E. coli meningitis in adults, you'll find it's extremely rare. Uh, just about all cases of E. coli meningitis happen in newborns. It's very rare to have that diagnosis beyond the age of three months. And there I was, 54-year-old white male, uh, and my doctors never figured out how I, how I got that disease. Uh, it was really a shocker. Wow. And it, what was striking to me in the way that you described um, the way the lumbar puncture was done in the emergency room um, was that when she actually inserted the needle you described like this viscous pus that just shot out of your spine and I, I found that so I saw that I found that so vivid because that just kind of described the seriousness of what you were going through at that time Right. Well, that, that's a very good point. And, and, you know, when I did talk to that emergency room physician many months later, uh, Dr. Laura Potter, um, 
she was uh, just completely blown away by the quality of my recovery uh, because seeing that, that first day in the ER, she knew I was in very deep trouble. In fact, she uh, and the other doctors later estimated uh, that I had about a 10% chance of recovery when I first went in the emergency room. I was put on three very intravenous antibiotics on a ventilator up on the medical ICU, but I really didn't show any signs of turning around uh, over the next uh, you know, four, five, six days. So my doctors were very concerned, and that's why they held the family conference on the seventh day of coma. It was a Sunday morning, uh, and that's when they said, well, he's gone from a 10% chance of survival down to a 2%, uh, and if he's in that 2% category, uh, what that really means is a month or two in hospital than being transferred to a nursing home in a persistent vegetative state. By that seventh day of coma, they didn't see that there was any kind of realistic probability of my having a useful, meaningful recovery. And that was one of the reasons why on that seventh day, they recommended stopping the antibiotics and letting nature take its course. And you know, it was a few hours later, I started coming back to this world. But very important to point out uh, for your listeners uh, is that when I came back, my brain was wrecked. I mean, it was absolutely savaged by the experience. I had no words or language when I first came back to this world. I had no memories of Eben Alexander coma. I didn't even recognize my mother, sisters, sons standing at the bedside. I had no idea who these beings were. And that's a very atypical feature in a near-death experience, that extreme amnesia. And of course, initially, I explained it all by uh, defaulting to my conventional uh, neurosurgical training, which said that memories are physically stored in the brain. So, you know, in the neocortex in particular. And so I thought, well, obviously, a severe case of meningitis would impact on the efficiency of that memory retrieval. And so that would explain why I had no memories when I came back. Uh, they returned uh, very rapidly, though. Words and language came back over literally hours and days. Uh, childhood memories and other early life memories came back over a few weeks. All of my uh, religious beliefs, semantic knowledge, all of those years spent studying cosmology, physics, chemistry, biology, neuroscience, every bit of that came back over about eight weeks. Uh, and that, that points out an, an extreme mystery about memory as it is. But uh, this is something that we discuss in our newest book, In Living in a Mindful Universe. We go into memory and how modern neuroscience is really coming to conclude that uh, memories are not physically stored anywhere in the brain, which is a giant nail in the coffin of that reductive wow. materialist neuroscience that tries to pretend that the physical world is all that exists and that the brain must somehow create consciousness. So in my own, there was a very strong mystery about memory and about its return, uh, because something else that's odd to mention about those memories is that I came to realize from conversations with uh, close family and friends about very distant episodes of life way back in my early years, and comparing some of those conversations before coma with similar conversations after coma, what I realized was that the memory return by eight weeks after coma was more complete than the uh, uh, quality of those memories before my coma. Uh, and again, it just points out memory is not physically stored in the brain, but our brain has access uh, to consciousness and access to memory. But to think that they are created in the brain, in the physical matter of the brain, is the gigantic mistake. 
And those who study consciousness in the modern era are moving beyond that colossal mistake. And that moving beyond is a complete reworking of our fundamental world views that have been around uh, for more than 400 years alongside the, uh, you know, the workings of the scientific revolution. Uh, but that's what we're getting at now is trying to get to a deeper understanding where some of our assumptions over those 400 years have been very misleading. Wow. Um, Dr. Alexander, so I want to go back uh, a little bit into your past um, and your uh, your background as a neurosurgeon. I, I read in your book that you mentioned um, as you kind of went through your training as a, as a neurosurgeon, you were kind of, uh, you know, distancing yourself from, uh, you know, religious beliefs or uh, maybe I would even say spiritual beliefs. Because you saw the brain as a, 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 you saw the brain in a, in a purely scientific uh, neurosurgical way, I guess, and I and I can see that how how, how going through the medical profession uh, does that, um, and I think that's important because later you described in your book how after you went through this experience that you're that I would love for you to dive into in a little bit um, how that changed you, you, your world view and your um, perception of consciousness because uh, w- what you laid out in the book seemed very real and um, you know I can imagine how an experience like that could change somebody so I, I, I would just want you I just wanted you to touch on that for a little bit. Well, yeah, it's, um, it has been just an extraordinary journey of discovery to try and make sense of this. Um, and uh, again, this is something we go into in great detail uh, in, in the new book, Living in a Mindful Universe. I would say the, the earlier book, Proof of Heaven, uh, is more of a question mark. It simply says, oh my God, these experiences are real. They're much more real than uh, you know, many of the experiences we have in these uh, material bodies, in these incarnations. Uh, and yet that is, I think, a, a key part of it, is people need to understand that even the workings of mundane, everyday consciousness uh, have not been even remotely understood by modern uh, materialist science. Uh, there's a concept in philosophy known as the hard problem of consciousness, which was originally defined by David Chalmers in the mid-1990s in a book he called The Conscious Mind. Uh, but that, that problem goes very, very deep. And the more you get into it, the more you realize that our conventional materialist science has no clue how to connect the dots to explain how the physical workings of the brain might give rise to consciousness. And of course, I had followed a, a conventional Uh, kind of upbringing in my scientific training. Uh, I went to medical school at Duke, and even though Duke is a very open-minded institution, I remember we had acupuncturists on staff there even back in the early 1980s. So even though it wasn't explained by Western medicine, people realized, well, acupuncture works, so we'll use it. Um, And Duke had that kind of mindset about many things. Of course, that's where uh, J.B. Ryan did a lot of the parapsychology research back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, was at Duke. And uh, some of his work to this day is some of the leading work in parapsychology that, that proves uh, you know, the reality of this much richer version of understanding the nature of consciousness. Um, but especially for me in my neurosurgical career, uh, I just 
had great difficulty explaining how conscious awareness, uh, as described by so many in near-death experiences, how that could be so greatly expanded and more uh, expansive um, during such an experience because most of what I had learned in that conventional treating, uh, um, training at least pointed to, well, the physical world is the only thing that we can touch and feel and identify, so somehow the physical brain must be responsible for creating consciousness. Uh, but again, that is the gigantic assumption that is false. Uh, and uh, again, this is something we go into in great detail uh, in Living in a Mindful Universe because some of the emerging models in science can take us to a much higher level in this understanding. And I wanted to mention one more thing you described in the book, and it was this uh, you were describing your previous uh, thoughts on consciousness, and you described, uh, you know, this experience, the, this convention where somebody who wh- whose consciousness was deteriorating would get an MRI, and they would find that they had a tumor in their brain, and then you know they'd go under anesthesia, get that uh, get surgery, and have that tumor removed, and all of a sudden after that tumor is removed, their consciousness becomes uh, they, they start to regain their consciousness, and you described that being your previous model uh, of understanding consciousness. And is there, to some degree, some overlap between the, the physical brain and holding consciousness, consciousness, or or is it purely uh, uh, a separate? Separate well, thing. I would put it this way. The, the modern scientific view that's emerging on this is something known as filter theory. Now, when I say modern scientific view, I need to acknowledge that filter theory was initially strongly supported by people like William James, uh, you know, kind of the father of modern uh, psychology who flourished in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he came up with filter theory. It was supported by other uh, investigators of the human psyche, people like... Uh, uh, F.C.S. Schiller, uh, Henri Bergson in, Fran- in France, um, Aldous Huxley, uh, other writers uh, would would talk about this kind of filter theory, and it turns out now it's taken on a whole new, much richer life uh, through modern scientists investigating the relationship between brain and mind. For example, I think two of the leading scientific books on these topics uh, both uh, come out of the Division of Perceptual Studies at University of Virginia. Both are edited by uh, Ed Kelly, and both of them build a strong case uh, supporting all of this evidence for filter theory. Uh, The first book is called Irreducible Mind Toward a Psychology for the 21st Century. came out in 2007. And then their follow-up book to that, which is much more about the hypothetical and scientific theoretical framework, Um, is called Beyond Physicalism Toward a Reconciliation of Science and Spirituality, and that book came out in uh, 2015. Um, And these are just examples of some of the uh, very extraordinary scientific works now that support uh, this kind of filter theory. But the reason filter theory is so important to get is because it doesn't, uh, you know, defy all the empirical evidence uh, that the production model does in trying to explain the origin of consciousness, uh, it basically supports it very richly, but by assuming that consciousness is primordial, that that is what actually exists, and then all the rest of the physical universe emerges from that consciousness. Can you just describe what the filter theory is uh, in simplistic terms for our audience? 
In simplistic terms, um, I think it's important to point out that any kind of philosophical discussion about the nature of reality, a relationship of mind and brain, the nature of consciousness, all that kind of very deep uh, uh, questioning of the nature of our existence um, must have something that you look at as uh, what's called an ontological primitive. Uh, that is, you've got to have something that you define as the ground on which everything else is built. For example, uh, in uh, quantum physics, uh, the, the, uh, that ontological uh, groundwork is the, the quantum field itself. Uh, in conventional um, materialist uh, kind of science and understanding, uh, we would say that the, the ground of the reality is the physical universe itself. Uh, and that, therefore, phys in physicalism, you need to explain everything based on that ontological primitive of the physical world. Now, the interesting thing about quantum physics, of course, is that one of the most uh, profound lessons uh, that's increasingly strengthened with modern refined experiments is that there is no objective physical reality out there. I mean, that's what makes quantum physics so absolutely shocking is it calls into question our very definitions of space and time and of distributions of mass and energy because it says it's something about those physicalist assumptions that try to pretend you can fit all of causality into this physical world obviously don't work. There's a big problem with it. Um, and so for the physics community, for example, they're very happy to default to Hugh Everett's uh, 1957 Many Worlds interpretation. You know, the infinite parallel universe is unfolding at every instant in space-time around every possible observation of an observer. Uh, and they're very happy with that because infinite parallel universes allows the math and physics of quantum physics to work. But try and make sense of the Many Worlds interpretation as an individual human being trying to live a life uh, here and make sense of those infinite parallel universes. And it really doesn't work. Uh, and again, this is something that we explain in much richer detail in Living in a Mindful Universe. But to kind of cut to the chase, instead of requiring all those infinite parallel universes, all we're saying is that if you combine filter theory, the notion that the in our view, in this filter theory view, um, you add the, the concept that the, that ontological um, ground, that primitive, um, instead of being the physical universe, which it is for conventional science, instead of being the quantum field, which it is for modern quantum physics, that ontological primitive becomes consciousness itself. Uh, and so basically it's an admission that the entire universe uh, is mental. Uh, and there are physicists who have argued this for a long time. In fact, the founding fathers of quantum physics, um, like Wolfgang Pauli and uh, Louis de Broglie, um, von, uh, you know, Jean von Neumann, uh, or John von Neumann, and Erwin uh, uh, Schrödinger and others, uh, said consciousness is fundamental. What the experiments in quantum physics showed them very clearly in those early days is you cannot get behind consciousness. You cannot assume it is an emergent property uh, of, of matter that comes out of the brain. Uh, but with this filter theory, what we're actually doing is simply acknowledging that consciousness is fundamental, that in fact what happens is consciousness can dictate all of this reality because the brain is such a complex kind of pattern recognition device. There are more states of the brain when you look at the uh, 
100 billion neurons, each one firing at 10 to 100 uh, cycles per second, each one with 10,000 connections. I mean, the number of states of that machine are greater than the number of subatomic particles in the universe. And what people need to realize is that that is a perfect device for printing out an apparent physical universe wow. uh, out of consciousness itself. Wow, that's such an amazing way to put it. You know, it, we don't usually think about um, consciousness and the brain working in that uh, in that kind of partnership kind of way, which is kind of cool when you when you put it in that way, uh, Doctor Alexander. It's, yeah, it really, it really is. I'm, I'm, my mind is like running right now. I'm like thinking, <laughs> I, I definitely want to read your next book, Living in a Mindful Space, and I think that's, uh, I think that'd be very, very interesting. I want to just jump. I want to skip over a little bit and talk okay. because I think people are, are would be very interested in this, and that's for at least for the people who are not familiar for, with your book, uh, Proof of Heaven. It is the story that you um, laid out so eloquently and the, experience, and the experience that you had during your coma and your near-death experience. Um, could you take us through that experience, those seven days? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> uh, you I'm know, sure you've done it a million times by now. <laughs> well, yeah, but I never get tired of it. And, of course, what I really love is how it opens the door for other people to share their experiences with me. Uh, because one of the greatest benefits of this whole journey has been because I've gone very public with this and talked to you know more than 100,000 people in presentations, uh, I get lots of people sharing their stories with me. And all those stories do is confirm in very powerful fashion the reality of this emerging worldview, um, which is very refreshing and liberating for all. But to get back to your question... Um, and, and again, for those who've read Proof of Heaven, this will be familiar, and uh, I go into great detail in that book. Um, but it all started in what I call the earthworm's eye view, a very primitive, coarse, unresponsive realm. Um, and it was like being in dirty jello. I remember a strong feeling of roots or blood vessels all around me. Uh, and I had no memory, as I said earlier, zero. I was amnesic for everything I had ever acquired in my life, all my beliefs and knowledge and personal experience. Everything was gone. Uh, so it was truly a very empty slate with no assumptions or prejudices. That is a very important point because it was that setting which I had to have to get so many of the lessons that I brought back from this, uh, that completely empty slate. Now, in that earthworm eye view, uh, it was very primitive and coarse and unresponsive. Even though I had no words or language, I could still kind of wonder, you know, what, where, how. And there was never a flicker of response in that realm to any of my querying at all, uh, which in a sense was kind of frustrating, but I guess it was part of the deeper lesson. Now, it turns out I didn't have any memory for time flows, so that scene, that initial phase in that earthworm eye view seemed to go forever. It went from, you know, eons and eons, but I was rescued, finally, because there came this pure, clear white light with fine silvery and golden tendrils off of it, and it came towards me slowly spinning with a perfect musical melody. And the music is very important because I'm sure your listeners will realize in those realms, you don't hear with the ears, you don't see with the eyes. Our mode of knowing can be totally different from what we're used to. Uh, for example, you can become 
entire swathes of the universe as part of the universe's educating you and informing you about the nature of reality. So uh, that's one of the reasons that these journeys are so impossible <laughs> to put into words. Um, now, it turns out that that, uh, that uh, spinning melody was just the beginning of this prolonged journey into many layers of the spiritual realm. Uh, and initially, that spinning uh, melody led up into this brilliant world, ultra-real, that I call the Gateway Valley. Uh, now, the Gateway Valley had many Earth-like features, but the interesting thing is that there was no death or decay. Everything was perfect. It was kind of like Plato's world of forms, where uh, there's a world of ideals on which all of this very primitive course uh uh, you know, real world that we live in is but a pale reflection. Uh, and likewise, that Gateway Valley was absolutely brilliant and loaded with uh, lots of love and, and reality, all these beings dancing and uh, dogs jumping and playing, children playing, all kinds of festivities going on. And all that was being fueled because up above were these swooping orbs of golden light that when I came back to this world and wrote it all up weeks later, I called them angelic choirs because they were emanating chants and anthems and hymns that would just thunder right through me, this awesome majesty and power of expression of that infinitely loving deity at the core of it all that truly goes beyond all naming. And of course, people want you to put a name on that. Uh, and, you know, to define is to limit, as Descartes said. So, And there is no way to put a name on that God force, although people want to default to, okay, so was that God? Is that what you're trying to describe? <clears throat> and of course, yes, it is, but it's so much grander than I ever could have remotely imagined, imagined in my wildest dreams before. And the other thing that was so shocking is the connection. Uh, you know, in my religious upbringing in the Methodist Church in North Carolina, uh, being taught that, you know, God was this great creative being out in the clouds uh, that created the universe— uh, and that you might encounter in some kind of afterlife. But what I saw in this journey is that God is not separate from our spark of, of awareness. That God is intimately, totally one with us. And that God doesn't lose any power in that process. Obviously, if that God were attached to our little egoic version of self, it'd be like, who cares? But I'm talking about that higher soul that is part of each and every one of us, to get beyond the simplistic uh, kind of nonsense of the ego. Uh, you know, the ego would much rather see the host dead than see the ego dead. That's what you run into in addiction and alcoholism studies all the time, where the ego is making demands, uh, and people unfortunately often have a bottom that's so low they die before satisfying the, the needs of their ego. Uh, and this is all about recognizing the voice in our head, the voice in my head, uh, and also the voice of my ego is not my consciousness. Okay, It's little more than a parlor trick. Mm -hmm. uh, consciousness is the awareness. So, and that is something that when uh, my co-author on Living in a Mindful Universe, Karen Newell, and I go around giving meditation play shops on all of this, um, we make it very clear that what we're trying to do is help you liberate yourself from that that little voice in the head, which uh, Michael Singer in his book *The Untethered Soul* calls the that's, roommate. Yeah, the uh, roommate. Yeah. Take that too hard. That's very real. I was just okay. going to mention that as you were speaking. I was going to mention that book, which I thought was a fascinating book. 
Yeah, it's a beautiful. It is. It's a beautiful way of putting the issue too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this meditation, and, and I try and meditate. Uh, an hour or two a day. I've been doing that for the last seven years. Uh, it's something we describe in tremendous detail in Living in a Mindful Universe. Um, and my co-author in that book, Karen Newell, is the co-founder of Sacred Acoustics. Uh, and people who want to learn more should go to sacredacoustics.com. Uh, but I've used those tones uh, on a daily basis to return to my NDE. Um, to develop a very rich relationship with the beings and forces and power, and especially that infinite healing power of unconditional love uh, that I encountered in, in that realm. Do you still recall this experience as vividly as you did it when, when it originally, when it happened? Or is it now more of like your memory of it? it that's a, a beautiful question, and it's very interesting because um, in fact, in the stages of coming back from this uh, coma, as I said earlier, when I first came to in the ICU, uh, and right when they pulled out that breathing tube, you know, my brain was still very, very wrecked. Uh, and I kind of went in and out of, of consciousness and had a, a crazy period of about 36 hours after coming out of coma. And after the endotracheal tube was removed and I was taken off the ventilator, where uh, I would have these bizarre situations evolve for me. But during all of that, in spite of the fact that it's a lot of it seemed like a nightmare that was a, a little too real compared to most nightmares, I still knew that every bit of that was made up, was a delusion, was a hallucination. Very, very different from what happened deep in coma. Those memories uh, that I described of that spiritual journey through many layers uh, in Proof of Heaven, which included not only that uh, gateway valley, but also ascending through uh, yet another portal provided by the angelic choirs of those swooping uh, angels, all the way out to the core, infinite inky blackness, but filled to overflowing with the love of the divine, that pure oneness of the core, where obviously human words fail Absolutely, given that our language is so much about defining different objects and relationships in that core realm, all throughout eternity and infinity is one. Um, And so I think, um, you know, in those realms, it's just uh, a whole different uh, language and understanding uh, that we need. And um, this journey. Uh, kind of helped me to realize that, especially because of that ultra-reality at a time when the detailed function of conscious awareness that should have been provided from a neocortex was not there. Mm-hmm. You know, there, it was nowhere to be found because of the documented damage to the neocortex. And I think, uh, uh, you know, that has been such an important part of my understanding this, and that's something that I go into in great detail uh, in, in the new book in trying to uh, explain all this and our model of filter theory and, and how people can interpret that uh, and, and go a lot further with the empirical data of human experience. And you described something, uh, you, just, you just recently said that it was an ultra-reality, a hyper-reality. And uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, part of it is that, uh, again, people make the mistake of assuming, for one thing, they assume that that's, you know, when you die, that it's going to be kind of a murky and kind of difficult to discern, kind of foggy, uh, kind of unreal 
dreamlike existence, whereas uh, more than a half of near-death experiencers will tell you it's much more real than anything they ever experienced in these material bodies in this material reality. That's the first kind of shocking awareness. Now, the other thing to get, uh, and I've made this point before, but it needs stressing, you're not seeing with the eyes. Sometimes you're seeing all around you, you see through everything, you have this kind of uh, uh, infinite vision, kind of Superman vision of a sort, Uh, but part of that is that we have knowledge by identification. So in other words, given that you're not looking with the eyes and hearing with the ears, but you have a much richer kind of mode of knowing that the universe provides in those realms, uh, a lot of it is becoming what is out there. For example, when you talk to near-death experiencers about the life review, the life review is not a new age concept. The life review has been around at least 2,400 years uh, and occurs in the majority of near-death experiences. It occurred in the one reported by Plato in Armenian soldier Ur 2,400 years ago. And what, what Ur came back telling his fellow soldiers is when you die, the most important thing is you go through the lessons still to be learned from any residual pieces of your life where you haven't made amends to others. Uh, and what you realize is that the great standard of living your life here is how much love you have managed to share with this world. Wow, and of course, coming from an Armenian soldier 2,400 years ago who'd been dead on the battlefield for days before they put him on the funeral pyre and then came back to life, I would say those words are pretty important to heed uh, because that's been borne out by near-death experiencers from all continents, all religious beliefs, including hardcore atheists. Uh, They bring back a very similar message that we're all in this together. It's truly all about love, compassion, kindness, forgiveness, and acceptance. Thank you, Dr. Alexander. So I, I, I'm also thinking one other thing when I when I'm hearing this, and I know other people might be thinking of the, of the uh, of how did religion fit into this? Because you there there are Christians, Muslims, uh, Hindus. There's all sorts of religions who I'm sure you've uh, you've had uh, ask you questions like, did you see Jesus? Did you see this? Did you see that? How do you answer that? And what was your experience with that? Well, I I think to me the important thing that I gleaned from my experience very strongly, and I would say has certainly been supported by studying thousands of other NDEs and similar spiritually transformative experiences, um, is that uh, um, I would say all all the meditative traditions, the mystical traditions of all the great faiths, whether you're talking about Kabbalism, Uh, Jewish mysticism, uh, Christian mysticism, Sufism, Islamic mysticism, Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, Shintoism, uh, Hinduism, they all converge on that 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 notion of the of the one force of that infinitely loving power and even something like buddhism can focus on compassion and on on the oneness of of shared life between us all Um, and to me especially as i started sending out dvds of my early presentations before proof of heaven came out and was contacted by all the practitioners of these various uh, deep mystical faiths what i realized is they all converge um, you know, the orthodox uh, kind of differences in, uh, in the religious dogma, especially as it's packaged for the masses, 
is is not necessarily consistent with the t- original teachings of the prophets, you know, of Buddha, uh, Muhammad, of Christ, uh, and others. Um, and I would say that the central message that comes from those uh, great prophets and mystics, uh, the the um, you know the founding uh, forces of all the great spiritual traditions of humanity really focus more on that oneness and and of that uh, oneness of mind and that there's tremendous purpose in our existence but it has to do with uh, being there for each other uh, and that we're all truly here to support all of our fellow beings in this world uh, and thus I would say that uh, any modern religion that that uh, certainly supports this notion of oneness compassion kindness uh, you know, uh, taking care of the least, the last, the lost, uh, those aspects of any religious teachings um, are very consistent with all the modern lessons of, of NDEs that are reshaping our views of the nature of reality. To the extent that any religious orthodoxy leads to a we are better than, we are separate, um, mm-hmm. conflict, warfare, those yeah. aspects of religious teachings, uh, and from my point of view, contradict the lessons that are coming back from uh, near-death experiencers and have been for thousands of years. Uh, But important to point out, even though most of our, uh, I would say, our our religious uh, orthodoxies, etc., arose from people who had these kind of experiences, so spiritually transformative experiences were at the origin of all of our kind of religious understandings, for the vast majority of humankind's existence on Earth, they were pretty rare. And then in the late 1960s, what happened is doctors developed techniques to resuscitate cardiac arrest patients. That is no accident. Because what that means is over the last 50 years, we have now generated uh, literally millions, or if not tens of millions of souls who have been to the other side and come back to this world. Uh, and they basically represent kind of a spiritual army of people who who support and understand all this from their firsthand experience. Of course, our culture does its best to try and dumb it out of you and have you deny the reality of these experiences. But that's why I think Proof of Heaven and similar books, that kind of take this to the next level in terms of the scientific spiritual discussion, are so important. Uh, I believe that all of you... Mankind is going through a tremendous awakening now. I believe the revolution in understanding about the nature of reality, based on our deeper discernment of the relationship between brain and mind and the nature of consciousness, uh, will lead to a revolution that will make the Copernican revolution, where uh, you know mankind shifted the center of the universe from the Earth to the Sun, will make the Copernican revolution look like child's play. This one will be gigantic, but it is a tremendous reversal of many of our cultural assumptions uh, that we've come to accept that falsely lead us to believe that we are separate and falsely lead us to believe that our existence is birth to death and nothing more. Because a gigantic part of this package, as I briefly describe in Proof of Heaven, but elaborate on much more richly in the new book, Living in a Mindful Universe, and we talked about it in the second book, which is called The Map of Heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but that is the notion of reincarnation. And you really can't make any sense of any of this until you realize that it is an absolute fiction to believe that we only come to this world birth to death and nothing more. Um, you know, filter theory allows for this. Uh, um, every bit of the uh, evolving 
kind of notion of, of psyche and of the mind-brain relationship allows for multiple returns to this world. And in fact, in the last 30 years, there's been a tremendous growth in what is called transpersonal psychology through workers like Stan Groff, um, uh, Brian Weiss, Michael Newton, other very brave, uh, courageous investigators who were all trained in kind of modern conventional physicalist thinking, but in their uh, experience working in people, especially delving deeply into the psyche and exotic human experiences, they realized you could not explain it all based on their working models. We need a much bigger model of consciousness, mind and brain to make sense of this, and that bigger model must incorporate a very robust sense of reincarnation. Doctor, I'm so intrigued and fascinated with the things that you talk about, especially coming from, uh, you know, someone uh, of your standard where you seem so so grounded and, uh, you know, you have this strong medical science background in science uh, rooted in fact. And um, I'm sure along the way that you faced some skepticism from people where they may not have uh, understood your story, or especially from the medical community, I could see where you face skepticism. What have you, how have you kind of answered uh, the skeptics, and what would you say to them? Well, I think the important thing to point out is I've actually been very shocked uh, the other way, how so many scientists and physicians and nurses and people who work with the dying and scientists of all stripes, and that certainly includes a, a large number of physicists, realize that the conventional scientific model of physicalism and brain creates consciousness is completely false. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what I've actually found is tremendous support in the scientific community. Now, there are a few who jumped on the bandwagon early on because their prejudices and their assumptions would not allow for a journey such as mine. Um, Just as, you know, I recoiled tremendously. I came back uh, to this world thinking I had to explain it as some vast hallucination. But then as I got deeper and deeper into my medical records and scans, I realized that doesn't work at all. Because the part of my brain that would do a hallucination or dream or drug effect and create some kind of imagery or, or, uh, you know, some kind of scene was gone. The neocortex is necessary for that. Uh, In the eight weeks after my coma, going back to talk with my doctors, go through the scans and all that, I came to realize I didn't have any part of my brain left that could contribute to any kind of conscious awareness. So... Uh, What I've found is a tremendous number of physicians uh, and scientists who are fully on board with all of this. And a number of them have endorsed our newest book, Living in a Mindful Universe. People like Dean Radin, who's the head of, um, of scientific research at the Institute of Noetic Sciences out in California. Ed Kelly, uh, who, as I said, is the lead author in those world-changing books, Irreducible Mind and Beyond Physicalism. Uh, Bruce Grayson, who heads up some of the best NDE research on Earth. Jim Tucker, who is the current director at Division of Perceptual Studies. Dr. Larry Dossie, uh, Stan Krippner. Um, Bernardo Castro. I mean, there are a number of very advanced thinkers in modern science who have come out to fully endorse our new book, Living in a Mindful Universe, because they realize this is getting at the truth much more richly. Uh, But you really have to 
to go the distance um, in terms of this uh, understanding. And it's by putting Band-Aids on a broken worldview, that is the worldview of physicalism, that's gotten us in so much trouble over the years. Mm-hmm. Because we keep pretending that we can put little Band-Aids on that will fix little problems, whereas the problems are way too big. When you look at things like terminal lucidity, where people whose brain has been terribly damaged by disease and they may not have said a meaningful word for months can all of a sudden come back to life right before they die, often at a time when they're seeing the souls of departed uh, departed loved ones. Um, that's shocking, and it gets your attention, and it's quite common in the hospice world and in the nursing community for those who take care of dying patients. Uh, and it clearly shows us that our physicalist model of brain creates consciousness is false. Uh, so we're really trying to um, explain so many other of the rich empirical experiences of humans in this world. Um, that's what we're trying to make sense of. Dr. Alexander, you've you've done lots of research on near-death experiences, and, and surely there are so many things that we just cannot explain. Um, and you mentioned in a previous interview uh uh, things that you've heard or accounts that you've read about people with near-death experiences and people who have had um, shared death experiences, which I thought was really cool. And I just wanted you to touch on that for a little bit. Okay. Um, yeah, shared death experiences are really fascinating. I, I must say I started giving talks about my experience about two and a half years before Proof of Heaven came out back in the spring of 2010. Uh, and what would happen is after I give these talks to groups of a few hundred people, uh, several would come up to me and say, I've never told anybody this before, but. And then they tell me a story. It might have happened 50 or 60 years earlier of some profound near-death experience that they had and had never shared with anybody. Now, for about every 20 of those, I would say I'd have another kind that are the shared death experiences. These are real shockers because they happen in people who are physiologically normal and healthy. Uh, It may be someone, say, a family member standing at the bedside as a loved one is dying, uh, or it can happen 3,000 miles away. It doesn't matter if you're a long distance from the departing loved one because you know, the material realm is the illusion. Uh, there is no distance or even separation in time in those spiritual realms. So when a, a, a loving soul departs this world, they often will come through and give us a, you know, a goodbye message on the way out and that kind of thing. Now, shared death experience, which is what you brought up, are the cases where, for example, somebody might be at the bedside, uh, you know, tears all around because everybody is facing the ugly finality of death of their loved one. And then what happens is the shared death experiencer will notice the walls, the ceiling, the floor dissolve. In come these beautiful light beings, and up comes the soul, light body, up out of the departing loved one. And it's escorted away with these beautiful light beings that have come to the scene. And the soul of the bystander goes along, even to the point of witnessing a full-blown life review for the departing loved one. And then they come back to this world. Now, if you don't think that's a challenge, that's incredible. You, when people describe that, they describe being so ecstatic and elated over the incredible vision of the reality, the continuity of existence of our souls 
this incredible process of you know uh, being uh, escorted by souls of departed loved ones, going through that review of life where any of the residual lessons of life are to be learned. Interesting thing about that life review is you don't experience it from your own viewpoint, but from the viewpoint of those affected by your thoughts and actions. So if you've handed out pain and suffering to others in the life review, you become the others to feel the impact of that. Now, it also works for your love and handing out love and kindness. So best to work your life handing out plenty of love and kindness and greatly <laughs> minimize any pain and suffering you give to other people because in the life review, you become the other end of it. You have to receive it all. It's part of a, a learning technique uh, uh, to help us in that next incarnation to do uh, a better job. But um, oh, it's so all that process of learning and understanding and growth. That's what we're talking about. So, so powerful. Um, so I wanted to touch on next, like, I'm sure that going through something like this completely changes you as a person. Maybe I, I'm assuming it would change you as a person. And uh, what is what is kind of, how has that changed you over the years? Or how would that change somebody that would experience something like that? And uh, what is your? What are your goals now that you went through this? What is the message that you want to spread to the world? I know that you're you're so kind to do these interviews and spread this message all the time and write books, and, and I feel like you have a sense of purpose to really get this message out there. And um, what what are you what what are you trying to do now? Well, you know, it's uh, that's a very good question. I can tell you that when this kind of thing happens. You pretty much have to go back to square one, especially if you're someone like me who kind of bought into uh, the fiction. Uh, it's a very paltry fiction, but of, of materialist science, you know, brain creates consciousness, birth to death, nothing more. Uh, and what I came to realize in my journey is that's completely wrong. Uh, and I really had to go back to square one. I had to question everything because I, I tried to just kind of put band-aids on the broken worldview, explain all this is you know, somehow uh, sneaking through with my old assumptions and preserving them as intact, but you can't do it. Uh, that's not the way this universe works, and it's a much grander universe than I ever could have pictured before. Um, all of those years spent in academic neurosurgery uh, were very important. You know, if it hadn't been for all that, uh, I would have gone through this experience and not had an, enough in the way of tools to understand what it really meant. Uh, and I think these journeys... Uh, are always there to help the individual soul to go through the growth that they are going through at that phase in their uh, odyssey uh, of existence. Um, and so it really, uh, it's very liberating and refreshing. But on the other hand, you have to go so far. We're really talking about uh, a complete 180-degree flip from that conventional view of physicalism, you know, physical world is all that exists, brain creates consciousness, Given that doesn't work, it's false. Uh, it's full of holes. It's surprising that kind of thinking has been around as long as it has, given that it doesn't even offer the first step in explaining how consciousness might emerge from the brain. That's the hard problem of consciousness. But we have to go all the way along the linear spectrum of possible relationships between brain and mind through all the dualities. The dualities basically are ways of saying, well, you cannot fully reduce brain or mind to the other, so therefore uh, let's talk about how they might interact. But at the far end of that spectrum is pure materialism. 
And that is the notion that we live in a mental universe, that the whole objective physical universe is projected out of the mental, uh, which is a tremendous way of returning free will uh, to the individual sentient being in, in a gigantic fashion, given that that free will is pretty much uh, taken away by materialist science. Once you you know, in materialist science, you visualize consciousness as an epiphenomenon or an illusion. It's an accident of the chemical reactions and electron fluxes of the material substance of the brain. Uh, but again, that is a false view. That is incorrect. And by flipping it and, and going to idealism, where we realize that uh, uh, the mental is the part that exists and then projects all the rest of this universe, as, uh, as I discussed earlier, it's tremendously liberating, but it's also a much bigger theater of operations. And that's what I think is somewhat frightening to some materialist scientists who were, felt like they were on the verge of a, quote, theory of everything, and now they realize they don't know nothing. So, <laughs> kind of frightening. So, Dr. Alexander, how can people use this knowledge of... of, of of having a, this deep sense of consciousness, how can people uh, tap into that? How can people change their lives to kind of uh, evolve in a sense? I would say uh, very simple. Every day, take a little time to go within. Uh, once you realize that consciousness is not created between your ears, it is not created by the substance in the brain, and that the little voice of your ego is not who you are, and it's not the deep mystery of consciousness, then you start realizing, well, maybe if I start exploring this thing called consciousness, I can learn something more about it. And that is very much the case. Now, for people who say, well, wait a minute, I've tried meditating, and that little voice in my head, the monkey mind keeps chattering away, I can't do it. Uh, I would recommend try Sacred Acoustics. Go to sacredacoustics.com. Uh, and again, this is something we explain in great detail um, in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. You can also go to ebonalexander.com to learn more, sacredacoustics.com to learn more. Uh, but differential sound frequency has tremendous power to give you a transcendental state of conscious awareness that is not stuck in the here and now and in the false sense of self. Uh, uh, the generic term for it loosely is called binaural beats, although the form that you find in sacred acoustics is the most powerful form I've ever encountered, uh, and it's due to what uh, uh, creator in sacred acoustics, Kevin Causey, has labeled uh, neural helix. That's the technology he uses to bind these sounds together. But the interesting thing is by slight differences in the frequency of the sounds to the two ears, you intercept uh, consciousness at a very primitive level in the lower brainstem. And, uh, for example, you can use that difference of frequency of, say, 4 hertz, uh, 6 hertz, 8 hertz, 9 hertz, um, to generate very strong signal in the lower brainstem that ends up driving um, that whole ascending ignition system that neuroscientists uh, you know, would know as the reticular activating system and the way it influences thalamocortical loops not to turn this into some boring neuroscience lecture, but the bottom line is we're intercepting consciousness at a very primitive level. That's a circuit that arose more than 300 million years ago, before mammals, uh, back when uh, uh, reptiles and amphibians were first crawling out of the muck. So it's by going back to that very primitive a level in the nervous system in terms of a um, evolutionary neurobiology, we're going to a primitive level, uh, and by that slow left-right oscillation in the lower brainstem, I believe that 
is what is allowing our conscious awareness to be set free. And for those of you out there who are uh, big students of modern neuroscience who hear this and go, hmm, I wonder what he's talking about, you have to try it. Don't just sit there and think about what it might be like. Go to sacredacoustics.com, download that free 20-minute um, uh, audio recording and listen through headphones uh, and let those tones take you away. And, uh, you know, it doesn't always work the first time and it doesn't work for everybody, but the bottom line is there are many tens of thousands of people out there who are benefiting from this extraordinary expansion of conscious awareness that comes from using sacred acoustics as a meditative tool. And by developing a much richer relationship with our higher soul, with that one mind, with that primordial consciousness, uh, by thinning the veil, as it were, and I believe the veil is what the brain does. It doesn't create consciousness. It actually dumbs it down. It limits consciousness to this tiny little trickle of bandwidth of our apparent here, now, and sense of self. But you can get far, far beyond that by exploring those boundaries and by traversing that veil. Uh, and sacred acoustics is a perfect way to do that. Amazing. Thank you, Dr. Alexander. Um, I like to end the segment usually by asking you, what does it mean to go beyond medicine? And I know you as a physician, as a neurosurgeon, have, especially with all the work that you've been doing, have been going far beyond medicine. But in essence, what does that mean to you? Well, what I would say, first of all, is every single word I've spoken over the last hour is about healing. Healing is becoming more whole. That is, becoming more of who we came here to be. Uh, spirituality, from my definition, has two major components. One is that it brings meaning and purpose into our existence, and the other is it acknowledges the oneness of mind, that we're all here sharing one consciousness, that God consciousness. We are bound together through the infinite healing power of love. And that's why compassion, kindness, and forgiveness are the deepest scientific lessons of this journey. Um, and I believe all of this is very liberating. Uh, compared to that paltry fiction of, of scientific materialism that I used to believe in. I worshipped that you know, scientific materialism before my coma. And I do not use that word lightly because uh, modern conventional materialist science is a faith-based religion that over the issue of consciousness has less to support it than some of the faith-based religions. So it's really high time that we question a lot of our fundamental assumptions, went back to square one, and started addressing all the empirical data of human experience and not just kind of eliminating, denying, and debunking every bit of it that doesn't fit our very limited um, fiction of, of assumptions in scientific materialism. Wow, thank you, Dr. Alexander. I want to uh, I want to acknowledge you and say thank you for all the work that you're doing, for the message that you're spreading, and for the people that you're helping. Uh, I, I really think that this episode and uh, episodes to come that you're going to do and books that you're going to write um, are really going to help people. And I recommend everybody to really buy your books, uh, Proof of Heaven, incredible book. I really couldn't put it down. And your newest book, Living in a Mindful Space, is that right? Living in a Mindful Universe. Universe, Universe. Uh, Living in a Mindful yeah, Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Heart of Consciousness. And the second book is also very helpful. Uh, it's called The Map of Heaven. 
uh, or how uh, science, religion, and ordinary people are proving the afterlife. Uh, so the three of them together are quite a package indeed. But again, important to point out to people, this newest book, Living in a Mindful Universe, is really the one that takes gigantic leaps forward in terms of our scientific understanding of the nature brain-mind consciousness and of trying to put it all together uh, in a way that we can all make use of and learn how to live our lives uh, in a much more uh, complete uh, fashion. It's really all about becoming whole. And again, so it's all about healing. Uh, and that's what we're in the process of doing with every bit of this conversation. Awesome. Thank, Thank you so, you so much. much for having me. Thank you so much, Doctor.